0: This is Lee Habib, and this is Our American Stories, and we tell stories about everything here on this show, from the arts to sports, and from business to history, and everything in between, including your stories. Send them to ouramericannetwork.org. That's ouramericannetwork.org. On March 7th of the year 2000, an American legend died, and our own Alex Cortes brings us a celebration of his extraordinary life.
1: the ongoing story of America's economic and business history, it happens again and again. One person with imagination and nerve gets an idea and develops into an industry and then into part of American life.
2: And one man thought that every American should have television. Believe it or not, not too long ago, many outside of the largest cities didn't. They couldn't. In 1952, the year the Corvette came to life and David Hasselhoff was born, Hills and mountains would get in the way of households in rural areas and small towns receiving the signals of what's called broadcast television, ABC, NBC, and the only handful of channels that existed then, which was TV rich, but is TV poor compared to today. Now imagine you have zero video products in your life, and that was the life of Bill Daniels until he said enough for all
1: of us. Well, there's got to be a way that you can get television to small towns.
2: I don't know what that way is, but there's got to be a way. That way? Cable TV. Antennas in our local areas that pick up television signals and then send them through long cables to each one of our homes. A lot of the
1: public take it for granted because they were raised on it. Uh, I was not. It hit me... uh, the age of 32, and I thought, holy mackerel. Every community in America today gets as much or more television than New York, Chicago, or San Francisco, and
2: ain't that something. Daniels also thought that it could bring everyone, even the supposedly TV-rich city slickers, more than the five to eight network and local channels that they had with programming that was Endless.
1: You ain't seen nothing yet. You'll say the day you have 100, 200 channel choice of programming. Uh, some of the people say I wouldn't know what to choose if I had that many channels, but uh, God, it's just getting started.
2: This vision and his dogged pursuit of it led him to be known by another name.
1: The father of cable television. A man who's called the father of cable
3: television.
2: He was
4: tagged with the title of father of the cable television industry. I think he basically was the dad that said, come on, guys, here's where we're going, and we're going to get there.
1: I've been in the cable business for 40 years. A lot of people call me the father of cable television. I guess that's because I'm so damn old, but... uh... We have in our company, believe it or not, over the years, probably owned and operated more systems than anybody in the country.
2: But growing up, Bill didn't have more of anything. We were a poor family. And my dad sold life insurance
1: to farmers during the Depression. Now that's tough, friends.
5: <laughs> and let me tell you,
1: hungry, no clothes. If you were, went through the Depression... It was a real incentive to a lot of us to say, God, someday I'm going to do something about this. I'll never forget that I said to my dad once when I was 10 years old. I said, Dad, when we grow up and get rich, can I have a little Henry Bar?
3: <laughs>
1: uh, I can remember my dad taking their four children in our family down to have an ice cream cone, and that was a big deal to us. It was a nickel. And I was sitting next to my dad, and I said, can I have two? He belted me (laughs) to try to teach me that I'll be lucky to have one. I graduated from my Navy fighter pilot training two weeks after Pearl Harbor, and it wasn't planned that way. People say to me, you know, you were a hero, you volunteered, you knew we were going to have a war. Baloney. I had no idea that was going to happen. My timing was bad in that case, so uh, I ended up... uh, Seeing a lot of action in World War II, and I think I'm like like a lot of guys. uh, It rubbed off on me that I was going to be glad to get out of there alive. I was going to work hard and count my blessings every day that I was still walking around.
2: And that's exactly what he did back at home and working in the family insurance business.
1: If your ambition is to make money and to get a good job,
2: I can't emphasize enough the way you handle
1: yourself, how important it is, and regardless of where you are. When I first got out of the Navy, my dad had an oil insurance business, and we're a little town in New Mexico. Hobbs, New Mexico. You haven't lived till you've been there. (laughs) And I was a notary public, how do you like that? And every time i sign my name to a piece of paper, I got a port. A guy walked in my office one day with khaki clothes on, and he had 20 documents he wanted notarized. I notarized every one of them. He said, what are you? Now, 20 times 25, I think that'd been five bucks that I made, and I said, nothing, sir. Hey, we're happy to have you in our city. Come back anytime, Let me know what I can do for you. Thank you. Appreciate that. A guy walks in my office about three years later, three-piece suit. And he, by that time, owned seven drilling rigs. And he laid the insurance account on my lap and said, I want you to write the insurance on this. And over a two-year period of time, my brother and I, my dad had died in the meantime. About $600,000 in insurance premiums into our little company. What's the point of the story? I said to the guy, why you give me the business? He said, I came in here three years ago and you notarized some papers for me and you didn't charge me and you couldn't have been nicer and more polite you never know
0: you never know and what a good lesson to learn about almost anything in life and it's sometimes you're helping somebody who will one day help you but that's not why you did it and when we come back we're going to learn so much more about the unlikely father of cable television Bill Daniels And by the way, in World War II, this Navy fighter pilot fought at Midway, Guadalcanal, and the invasion of the Philippines. He saw real action. And by the way, he was called back to duty for the Korean War II. When we come back, it's Remarkable American Story, Bill Daniels' story, here on Our American Story. And we continue here with our American stories and with the story of the unlikely father of cable television, Bill Daniels. Let's continue the story. In
2: 1952, Daniels was driving from New Mexico to Wyoming where he was starting an insurance business. And when he stopped in a Denver bar for a meal, he saw something that he had never seen before. I was 32 before I ever saw a television. I saw it in Denver in a bar
1: prize fight and I happen to be a prize fight fan and uh, when my first looked at it, I thought what an invention that is picture and sound into a home at the same time I couldn't get over that and my reaction was wow that is some invention and I look forward to seeing more television when I get to Capitol
2: Wyoming but he got there and there was no television
1: I thought, there's got to be a way that you can get television in a small town. I don't know what that way is, but there's got to be a way. So I went to work on the project
2: and got it done. Being the first to use microwave technology to relay a broadcast signal. And according to his colleague Gene Schneider, those early days were precarious.
4: We were taking in $1,500 a month, and we were spending about $15,000.
2: But the Casper cable system they built soon won the business of 4,000 subscribers, one-third of the area's homes.
1: I was the president of our National Cable Television Association, the second president, and there were about 500 systems in the country. And I had people call me saying either want wanted to buy a cable system or sell one. And I'd put buyers and sellers it together. would not take a fee because I didn't think I could. because. In my view, I was president of the National Trade Association. I didn't think it was proper. No. Students, there's integrity. But a light went up over my head. And I said, there's a business here. I think it can be a hell of a business.
2: And it did become a hell of a business. Here's the later president of Daniels and Associates, John Seaman. He was the
4: only one doing that. You know, this was too small for Wall Street. So it's primarily Bill and his persona that were causing whatever few deals were being made to happen.
2: But that doesn't mean that things were easy. They weren't. Here's John on telling his employer that he was leaving to work for Bill and the credit report that they ran on him.
4: It was horrible. I mean, it was just horrible. <laughs> the, the debts way exceeded, so Bill's line about, they tell me I'm a millionaire, was purely part of the hype and the persona that he had created, anything but true. But yet, he had made such an impression on me that it didn't matter. I thought, here is a true leader In an industry whether i know i didn't know much about the industry i didn't know its potential i didn't have its vision but this guy did and i thought i'm going to be way better off hitching my wagon to him than i am staying where i am so the fear of this guy is in danger of not being able to pay his bills for whatever reason as a young guy with a family didn't have a negative effect on me. But those were very difficult times. Every two weeks was a payroll challenge. The business was very unpredictable. The brokerage side of the business was feast or famine. You could work a long time on a transaction and it wouldn't close. So you'd have a lot of travel and other expenses associated with trying to get the engagement and complete it. And at the end of the day, you could end up with nothing in the basket.
2: Here's Bill on a secret sauce for taking on these challenges. Just
1: to uh, to give you my credentials, uh, you're looking at a guy who has very little formal education. I have never had an IQ test, so I don't even know what my IQ is. I'm afraid to take it, by the way. And I never thought I was very smart, and I still don't. My business career has been successful because I've hired good people, and I know my faults. And as you go through your practice and business, the sooner you recognize your weak points and cover those positions with competent people, the better off you'll be, believe me.
2: Bill survived and thrived, but his competition in network and local TV were used to having no competition, and tried to use the force of government to make he and Cable goners.
1: We went along for about five years, and uh, we weren't a very exciting business, but we had a monopoly, and we uh, provided something the public wanted at a fair price. After about five years, we served about two million subscribers nationwide. Today we serve almost 60% of the homes in the country. But let me list for you the people after five years thought that we were a threat to them and the enemies that we had in the cable television business. How's this for a lineup? ABC, CBS, NBC, at and local television stations, the Federal Communications Commission, the Congress, including both the House and the Senate, all the lawyers in Washington D.C., the represented broadcasters, most city governments, most county governments, and most state governments. Now that's pretty tough, isn't it? My attitude at that time, I uh, was about 30 233 along in there, was well, now, wait a minute, if all of these people are busting their a- to stop our business from succeeding, you know, we must have something. <laughs> if we didn't, then they could care less about us, right?
4: He often wrote letters to congressmen and others about pending regulations and say things like, I didn't go off to fight a battle in the Pacific to fight for the country's freedoms, to have you throw in a bunch of regulations that make it impossible for me to do business. He had great intuition. He looked at every opponent as an opponent that we could ultimately win over, as opposed to one that we had to destroy, and I think that was a unique characteristic about Bill. He. In, in the very early days, when the cable industry was fighting its big battles with broadcasters, Bill regularly read Broadcasting Magazine. He regularly communicated with people who were accomplished and recognized in Broadcasting Magazine. Bill, even though the broadcasting industry were basically our enemies trying to do us harm, Bill would take that picture from Broadcasting Magazine, have it mounted on a plaque, shellacked, with the guy or gal's name on the bottom of it, the date of the publication, and he'd send him a note. Congratulations. didn't make any difference whether this guy was president of NBC or, you know, an engineer in Sacramento. If they were on that back page, Bill was going to send them a note and they were going to get a plaque. So Bill was engaging the enemy while many were trying to destroy the enemy and they were trying to destroy us. As a result, I think Bill had an entree that made it very possible for us later on to play a big role in bringing broadcasters, newspaper organizations into the ownership of the cable industry and come into the tent as opposed to be outside as our enemy
2: to put it mildly bill's big tent won here's nbc and daniels the perfect marriage broker the man who did much to connect the nation from nebraska
1: farmhouses to park avenue penthouses two-thirds of american homes now are
2: wired for cable here's bill with his colleagues at daniels and associates
1: all of you who have made this company such a success. I really appreciate it. A company is people. People make the company. I don't make it. The product doesn't make it. The people make it. And I just want you to know I'm awful damn proud of all of you.
0: And you've been listening to the voice of Bill Daniels. And my goodness, so many Americans got to enjoy television across this great country because of cable and now are enjoying Internet services. And my goodness, the type and quantity of content that Bill probably couldn't have imagined even in the year 2000. It's been so remarkable what's happened in the area of content and content delivery in this country. And when we come back, we'll continue with more of the story of Bill Daniels. And my goodness, him saying a company is people is so true. And A man with great intuition and great integrity knew that his greatest decisions were in the people he chose and how he took care of them. When we continue more of the life of the father of cable television, Bill Daniels, here on Our American Stories. continue with our American stories and the story of Bill Daniels, who brought the wonderful world of cable television, well, to all of us, and was richly rewarded for doing so. Let's return to his story.
1: I guess it's kind of like if you go to heaven, you'd believe in there's religion on earth. (laughs) And I've been so lucky and so successful that I have to be a champion, I guess, of the free enterprise system. Uh, But I've studied other governments. You know, I've been to Russia Uh, if all people in this country have to do is go to a foreign country that is either socialistic or a dictatorship or communistic, and then you really appreciate the free enterprise system. You live in a marvelous country. I've said many times, the eighth wonder of the world is a free enterprise system, and the ninth wonder of the world is so few people understand
2: it. Here's John Seaman
4: so bill loved the business of business he loved being an entrepreneur and he loved the free enterprise system that enabled entrepreneurship to be successful
1: while entrepreneurs are in vogue today 30 years ago not so much so but since you're in this class let me name a few early entrepreneurs henry Ford, what busted a couple times walt disney Went broke before he got going. Arm and hammer, bought an oil company for a tax shelter. And what happened? They discovered oil. <laughs> uh, King Gillette. King Gillette invested, invented the Gillette razor. The first year he sold 57 razors, but an entrepreneur. And God love him, the entrepreneur of all time, Great crop good friend of mine made a statement that I dearly love. He was so motivated and so ambitious, and somebody said to him one day, Ray, the country is becoming too saturated with McDonald's. He said, my a- <laughs> Saturation is for sponges. <laughs> I had no money as a kid. I didn't have any money when I started and uh, uh, I don't think money is everything. But by the same token, I think my biggest uh, my biggest accomplishment is my success in my business and I hope that I can continue to share my good fortune with others. The quote that uh, that I've used so many times, they don't have luggage rack on hearses, You can't take it with you. And uh, While I'm alive, I want to have some fun with my giving. And uh, it's fun to pick your charities while you're still kicking and uh, can watch people uh, enjoy and share with me my good fortune.
2: Here's the former president of Daniels & Associates, Tom Marinkovich.
4: Bill was one to give people second chances, and there's a lot of uh, examples of that. The ones I keep running into uh, and remembering really was all the young people that he put through colleges and that he gave jobs to
2: and he did this off the cuff whenever bill saw an opportunity to help someone who deserved an opportunity but didn't have one this wasn't a formal scholarship program at all and that led to some interesting problems
4: in fact at times that presented me a problem because i was trying to get the budgets organized and i've had to be a little tough on people about adding people and all of a sudden Bill would come in with two or three new young people and he wouldn't take no for an answer and uh, he ultimately helped those young people and he checked on them and he made sure they were responsible for their academics and their job performance after they came aboard
2: After Bill passed away he left one billion dollars to his foundation the Daniels Fund, which has already given away nearly a billion. And one of their signature programs is a more formal scholarship program. Here's John Seaman speaking before the new class of Daniels scholars in 2017.
4: I'm told over 2,000 applied for the Daniels Scholarship this year, 482 made it to the interview process, 235 were awarded Daniels Scholars. Just a reflection on cost of education today and the value of this scholarship. Depending on the school and other factors, four years of college today is going to cost approximately $150,000. If you finance that amount based on the federal student loan rate, you would be paying back $1,000 a month for 30 years. So as I look out on those of you who are here tonight with these scholarships, I say congratulations because you've won the lottery. (laughs) However, what you've done is better than the lottery, and the reason is because the lottery is strictly blind luck. You, on the other hand, because of the characteristics that are defined by the Daniels Scholarship Program. Through your character, leadership, and community service, you came by your scholarship honestly. Congratulations to all of you.
2: Here's Bill on his experience that inspired another extracurricular activity.
1: I got to tell you folks, I've been thrown out of more banks than anybody in the world. My first visit to a bank was after World War II and I was 25 and I had never been in a bank. I wanted to buy a car and my first visit to the bank, I felt like I was either going in for brain surgery or the defendant in a murder trial. Banks are intimidating. Wouldn't it be nice When a young person is 20 years old and just graduated from college or 21 and already have good credit on his own, well, why not give them an opportunity at a young age to learn
2: more on how to deal with a bank? Bill's idea was to create a bank that's only for young Americans, but that meant getting the approval of government regulators.
4: It sounds like a simple, wonderful idea, and by tomorrow morning, if we all got our heads together, we ought to be able to have a bank up and running. But it didn't work that way, and it seemed like every step that Bill took ended up being a no. But for many of us that know Bill well, no many times is looked at as a sign of encouragement to Bill. (laughs) So I I think they like us. So in any event, the bank opened with great fanfare.
2: Here's Linda Childers, the founding president of Young Americans Bank, on the over 91,000 accounts that have been opened.
5: Bill would just be so proud of that. He would just get tickled. He would come into the bank lobby and just kind of sit in the back of the bank and watch kids do their business. And it was such a kick to him to see this, and especially if they wanted to start a business. You know, he really loved to hear about their business, their business plans, and how he could be helpful to them.
0: And we've been listening to the story of Bill Daniels. And Bill's foundation, the Daniels Fund, is sponsoring this great story as part of their celebration of his 100th birthday this year and the 20th anniversary of the foundation. They focus on Colorado, New Mexico, Utah, and Wyoming, the four states that most affected Bill's life. And in addition to the Daniels Scholars and Young Americans Bank, that you heard about. The foundation makes grants to nonprofits in areas like ethics, youth development, education reform, addiction, and amateur sports. And you can learn more about their work at danielsfund.org. And while there, also pick up an incredibly beautiful book on Bill's life that has so much more to offer on this profoundly American story. And my goodness... That Bill Daniels created all these jobs, got TV into the houses and homes of people across this country, not just the people in the big cities, but doing what Sam Walton did too, because Sam Walton was able to bring lower prices to people on every variety of product and service uh, through Walmart, and we brought you his terrific story. And this only free enterprise can do. It is truly the eighth wonder of the world, as Bill said, and it has lifted so many people out of poverty. And given us all the goods, products, services, innovation that only free enterprise can drive and deliver. And when we come back, more of the life of this incredible American story, more about Bill Daniels and his life story here on Our American Story. continue with the final portion of Bill Daniels' extraordinary life story. In the 1980s and 90s, Bill gave over $22 million to what became the Daniels College of Business at the University of Denver, and he insisted that ethics and etiquette be a mandatory part of the curriculum.
1: The reason I did is, uh, first, all you got to do is read the Wall Street Journal every morning, and you'll see what's going on in some of the higher financial circles of our country. Uh, this, and that disturbs me. And the second reason is I've been fortunate, and in, I've interviewed probably 100 young men and women in this company who are MBAs. And I've been amazed, while they have technical skills, they're well-educated technically, what little they know about what goes on in the real world. I have a great nephew. They graduated from Harvard Business School uh, about three years ago now in my employ, and I asked him one day if at the Harvard Business School if there were any courses on ethics and integrity no I then checked with Stanford University no I then checked with the other hotshot schools Dartmouth Yale and I think uh, Horton I'm not sure else none of them offered a course in ethics and integrity
2: And the Daniels Fund has since expanded Bill's Ethics Initiative and are partnering with more business schools, law schools, high schools, police departments across the country, and an online case bank that anyone can access, reaching a total of more than one million Americans so far.
1: With heavy emphasis on ethics, integrity, manners, communicating with people, answering your phone, answering your mail, treating Everybody in your company with decency, treating your fellow man with decency, giving back to your community. Now that's a pretty big order.
2: And Bill just didn't talk a big game. He lived it. And even when he had nothing to his name. Here's the president of the Daniels Fund, Linda Childers.
5: So after Bill returned from the military, he moved to the state of Wyoming and started working in the insurance business. And he sold a policy to a warehouse owner. And Bill was proud of himself. It was a great, a great deal and went on down the road and I think it was about a year later there was an accident at the warehouse and someone was killed. And they filed the claim and Bill was horrified to find out that the reinsurance company had declared bankruptcy. And he felt that his integrity was on the line because he'd sold that policy. But there was nothing to be paid from the insurance company. So Bill Daniels, as a young worker, paid that claim himself. The claim was twelve thousand dollars. Bill paid that five hundred dollars a month by juggling his finances to make that work. It was more than he made, but it was important to him that his word was as good as gold. He was going to make that straight because he was then square with himself. That's who he was, and that's what mattered to him and his reputation. And I think with Bill it it wasn't that he said, I'm going to be honest and, and I'm going to do these things here because it's going to have long-term payoff. I think when he was a young man, he just did it because it was the right thing. And somewhere along the line, he said, wow, this is working pretty well for me. My reputation really does matter in the cable business.
1: I had to take bankruptcy with a basketball team that I owned in the state of Utah. It was the Utah Stars, we we're the league champions. Times were tough and my bank shut off my credit. So uh, I had to get all my players together, almost half, and said, we've got to shut her down. And I was miserable, let me tell you. I was crying, and I was on the 10th floor of the Travel Inn in Salt Lake City, Utah. And my lawyer is a graduate of this fine institution, a guy named Bob Nagel. And I said, Bob, I'm so heartbroken, I'm going to jump out the window. He said, Bill, the luck you're having, you're going to live. <laughs> <laughs> Now, the reason I tell you the story is I had temporarily stiffed citizens in Salt Lake City for $750,000 for season tickets that they'd been paid for and no more ball games, And we owed creditors, and that bothered the hell out of me. About six years later, I went by, made a couple deals, and I went back to Salt Lake City, and I paid every creditor with interest of 8% since the date I shut them down. And boy, did I feel good about that. I really felt good now the moral of that story is today some 18 years later I meet people in all over the country that say aren't you the guy that paid off the season ticket holders at Salt Lake City and I say yes that's me now what I'm saying to you is I did not think that was such a big deal at the time I just didn't want to have to lo- live with myself what I'm telling you is future lawyers and business people is that's a case of examples of ethics and integrity that come back to you that you never dreamed would come back to you. It sure isn't the reason I went over there. I went over there because I had to look in the mirror in the morning when I shaved. Don't get the impression that I'm an angel. I'm far from it.
2: And Bill wasn't joking. Here he is with refreshing honesty about his flaws.
1: You know, uh in my world of business you've got to get along with people you got to have a sense of humor you got to be able to make fun of yourself so let me take three minutes and say to you that while the introductions are nice that steve gives me we've all got skeletons in our closet i'm sure all of you are perfect <laughs> but when i finish you'll know that i'm the kind of a guy that lays it on the line so let me tell you a few things that it does not say in my resume uh, but I'll tell you one thing about me, I'm honest. Uh, I have a long-term relationship with the Colorado Motor Vehicle Department,
3: <laughs> and the, uh,
1: Colorado State Highway Patrol, and the same in California where I spend a lot of time. Uh, I lost a governor's race in the state of Colorado. Uh, I lost $5 million in the professional sports business I had been married and divorced four times. Uh, I lost $500,000 on a Ferris wheel for cars, (laughs) which I thought was the greatest invention of all time. You drove the car on this thing and it rotated this way and it saved ground space. It was a hell of a deal. I thought. I met guys that said, I've never made a bad deal in my life. Well, let me tell you something, folks. When somebody says that, they've never been in many deals. Because uh, those of us who are in and out of speculated deals all the time, we've lost a bundle. Uh, I'm a recovering alcoholic. I'm a graduate of the Betty Ford Center in uh, Rancho Ross, California. Uh, I'm at a drink uh, a year, April the 2nd. Uh, I've made and lost several fortunes. Uh, but I gotta tell you, I've had a ball. My brother went to Harvard, incidentally, and I'm not bragging about that. I have virtually no education, but when people compare myself with my brother, I tell them my brother went to Yale and I went to jail.
3: <laughs> <laughs>
1: the reason I do is because I have been in jail four times, and I was picked up for drunken driving on four different occasions in California. And it was at that time that I made up my mind that I had too many things
2: left in my lifetime to let alcohol get the best of me. Here's John Seaman.
4: I can't tell you how many times I heard him either in public statements or in letters or in conversation with people say, my primary goal is I want to go to heaven. Well, you don't think of Bill as a religious person. I've never thought of Bill as a religious person. But there's, a, there's an instinct there that defined Bill as a very unique person to be so conscious at all times of that being his primary goal.
1: When you put your life in perspective, you realize how little time there is to make something truly significant out of your life. To some people, this might mean acquiring a lot of possessions to others building a business or owning property. And there are those whose lives wouldn't be fulfilled unless they achieve fame and fortune. Happens to be my personal belief that what you live that others can benefit by and what you're able to teach the younger generation if you leave your life That way, you lead this world with a clear conscience and you might even have a smile on your face.
0: And great job, as always, to Alex and a very special thanks to the Daniels Fund for providing so much of the source material. What a life lived. Integrity, we hear a lot about. We hear about intuition, free enterprise. And by the way, integrity is, is not just a business proposal. It's a way of life, and in the end, if you're doing it because you think you'll get something back, it's a real bad reason to do it, and Bill understood that from an early age, making sure that that life insurance policy got paid out, making sure those ticket holders, that they got paid, too. Also, the honesty of this guy, sharing what he shared with an audience over a three-minute period, failed marriages, struggles with alcohol, it just makes him that much more real. And that that much more of a powerful story not glossing over the realities of life and the failures of life. But in the end, wanting to get to heaven is his primary goal, and that distinguishes him from so many people that run businesses more, I wish, had that stated claim. Bill Daniel's story, The Father of Cable Television, a classic American story, if ever there was one, here on our American Story. This is Lee Habib, and this is Our American Stories. And we tell stories about everything here on this show, from the arts to sports and from business to history, and everything in between, including your stories. Send them to ouramericannetwork.org. That's ouramericannetwork.org. And we are about to share with you Kobe Bryant's memorial service. And it was a remarkable service, and not enough of you probably got to hear it. And it's worth playing at least once a year. For a very long time. Kobe broke all kinds of records. Third in the history of the NBA in scoring until LeBron James recently passed him. Also five championships. Very few players have ever managed that. And also a fall from grace and some real problems with his marriage and with his life. And then the redemption of Kobe and his comeback. And my goodness, did he come back. And so we're going to share with you some of the speakers on this remarkable day. And my goodness, many of them were women, and Kobe's, Kobe's life was spent in the latter part of his life really working on behalf of women and championing them. First up is Gianna Gigi Bryant's mentor, and that's his daughter who was killed along with Kobe in that helicopter crash. And also a teacher and a friend. She's the NCAA's all-time leading scorer in points, assists, and three-point field goals and we're talking about Sabrina UNESCO.
6: Growing up, I only knew one way to play the game of basketball, fierce, with obsessive focus. I was unapologetically competitive. I wanted to be the best. I loved the work, even when it was hard, especially if it was hard. I knew I was different, that my drive was different. I grew up watching Kobe Bryant, game after game, ring after ring, living his greatness without apology, I wanted to be just like him, to love every part of the competition, to be the first to show up and the last to leave, to love the grind, to be your best when you don't feel your best and make other people around you the best version of themselves and to wake up and do it again the next day. So that's what I did. Wake up, grind and get better. A year ago, my team, Oregon, was playing at USC. The morning of the game, our coaches told us that there was a surprise for the day. I was thinking Nike sent us some new shoes or swag or something. Kobe walks in with his daughter, Gianna, and two of her teammates. They sat courtside while my jaw sat dropped, and that was the first time I met Kobe. Kobe, Gigi, and her teammates came into the locker room after the game. He congratulated us on the win, but said, and I'll never forget, don't shoot yourselves in the foot. He meant don't settle. The national championship wasn't far, and our goal was to win it all. I remember Gigi, excited and smiling in the locker room. I'd always watch a ton of film of her playing basketball. She had a fadeaway better than mine. I asked her where she wanted to play ball in college, and she said UConn. She had the will and determination to be able to play wherever she wanted. She and her teammates hung out with us for a while, starstruck and a little shy, but always observing. Whichever school she would come to choose, it didn't matter. If I represented the present of the women's game, Gigi was the future, and Kobe knew it. So we decided to build a future together. I worked out twice with Gigi over the summer. I'd gone down to help Kobe coach his team. Gigi had so much of her dad's skill set. You could tell the amount of hours they spent in the gym, practicing her moves. She smiled all the time, but when it was game time, she was ready to kill. I remember one time someone grabbed her jersey and she sort of just knocked him down and then stepped right over him. Me and Kobe looked at each other, smiling, and he goes, I don't know where she learned that from. I laughed and said I do you can't teach that and definitely not at her age Kobe was right she had it she always wanted to learn to go to every game she could college NBA WNBA Kobe was helping worth that because he saw it in her just like he saw it in me his vision for others is always bigger than what they imagined for themselves his vision for me was way bigger than my own more importantly he didn't just show up in my life and leave he stayed we kept in touch, always texting, calls, game visits. I'd drop a triple-double and have a text from him. A double, triple-double I see with a flex emoji. Another game, another text. Yo, beast mode, or easy money. He taught me his step back. He told me that if I could bring that to my game, it'd be over for any defender trying to guard me. He was giving me the blueprint. He was giving Gigi the same blueprint. He made it so that the outsiders who outworked everyone else who were driven to be just a little bit different every single day, to make those around them, behind them, and above them a little bit better every single day. I wanted to be a part of the generation that changed basketball for Gigi and her teammates, where being born female didn't mean being born behind, where greatness wasn't divided by gender. You have too much to give to stay silent. That's what he lived, through Gigi, through me, through his investment in women's basketball. That was his next great act, a girl dad. Basketball, in many ways, was just a metaphor. I still text them even though he's not here. The last one I sent him said, I miss you. May you rest in peace, my dear friend. The texts go through, but no response. Sometimes I find myself still waiting. It's so strange to describe him or Gigi in the past tense. You don't get used to that. The week after the accident, I was in Colorado. I had a game, and like I do before every game, I prayed. This time, I was thinking about Kobe and Gigi. His voice is still in my head, even if his body is not on this earth. And all I wanted was a sign that in some way, he still heard me too. I looked off into the sky and there it was, a beautiful golden sunset, the boldest yellow, Lakers yellow, and further in the distance, a helicopter. There was my sign that he will forever be with me. The last line from one of his books, Walk until the darkness is a memory and you become the sun on the next traveler's horizon. I ask each of you, every girl dad, every human here with a voice, a platform and a heart, to not let his sun set. Shine for us, for our sport where he once did. Invest in us with the same passion and drive and respect and love as he did his own daughter. In the end, she was a sun just starting to rise and God did she glow. May their light forever shine. Kobe and Gigi, I'll love you forever. Thank you.
0: And you were listening to the University of Oregon, Sabrina Ionescu, and my goodness, what a storyteller. He didn't just show up in my life and leave, and my goodness, this world champion, this mega-rich star, chatting up this college athlete and getting his daughter closer and being an example and mentor, this fine young lady, and by the way, always, always driving excellence, no matter what. Our first speaker was a great college ball player, and this next speaker, another powerful woman who was a remarkable college player and WNBA player, and we're talking about the great Diana Taurasi, and by the way, she is the three-time NCAA and WNBA champion and the WNBA's all-time leading scorer let's hear from diana in
7: 1996 i was a lanky awkward freshman in high school obsessively shooting night after night in my driveway on the nights the lakers played i would miss a second of the game every time out every commercial i run to the front yard to imitate my favorite laker kobe <sighs> On a few lucky occasions, my dad would come home from work. He was a metal sheet worker in Los Angeles, and he'd come home with Laker tickets. Watching Kobe play at the Great Western Forum as a rookie made this little girl believe she could be a Laker one day. It was like getting to know myself every single day. He made it okay to play with an edge that borderlined crazy. Early-onset Mamba mentality was in full effect. Years later, when I spent time with Kobe at the 2008 Olympics, I learned firsthand that it just wasn't limited to the basketball court. His competitive fire ran through his veins, just like many of us today. Every single workout, I end the same way with the Kobe game winner. Three hard dribbles going right, left foot plant pivot, swing right leg through, elevate, square up, follow through. Five in a row and I got to go home. It's that exact same shot that won us a championship in Phoenix in 2014. Kobe's willingness to do the hard work and make the sacrifice every single day inspired me and resonated with the city of Los Angeles. We struggled together, we grew together, we celebrated victories together. The same passion we all recognized in Kobe, obviously Gigi inherited. Her skill was undeniable at an early age. I mean, who has a turnaround fadeaway jumper at 11? LeBron barely got it today. <laughs> but it was her curiosity about the game that was pushing her to pick up the basketball every single day. Gigi was in the midst of the best times as a basketball player's career, no responsibilities. No expectations, just basketball with your best friends. Every weekend was a new adventure, an opportunity to learn how to work and grow together as a unit. As a young kid, there's nothing you looked forward to more than long hot summer days in the gym with your homies. The same way Kobe inspired a generation of basketball players, Gigi interned Kobe's interest in coaching and teaching the game. I'm sure I'm not the only one who received a text from Kobe asking what drills they were doing when they were 13. Gigi in many ways represents the future of women's basketball, a future where a young woman aspires to play in the WNBA the same way I wanted to be a Laker. Gigi already had goals to play for UConn. That in itself showed her fearless mentality. She represents a time where a young girl doesn't need permission to play. Her skill would command respect. The last time I saw Gigi, the mamas were in Phoenix for a big AU tournament. Kobe brought them to the, to the locker room to watch practice. I always remember the look on Gigi's face. <laughs> It was a look of excitement, a look of belonging, a look of fierce determination. As a daughter, a sister, wife, and mother, we embraced Vanessa, Natalia, Bianca, and Capri. We promised to carry Gigi's legacy. Kobe Gigi están en el corazón de Los Ángeles, Los Ángeles nunca mueren. Te queremos mucho.
0: And you were listening to Diana Taurasi and that UConn star and UConn, well, the dominant NCAA power in women's college basketball. And that's where Kobe's daughter wanted to go. And Kobe, well, he told her the sky's the limit. And he got her to know that program and got her to know the coach of that program, the great Gino Ariyama. What interested Gino is that Kobe Bryant had talked to him often not about how to become a great player, but Kobe was now in a new role as a dad and as a husband and father, and that was the role of coach. And as anyone who's ever watched Kobe knows or knows about him knows, he wasn't always the most coachable athlete. Let's hear Gino.
8: How ironic that he would talk to me about coaching. The uncoachable one wants to talk about coaching. Probably the most uncoachable player in the NBA during his career wants to know about coaching. And I wanted to know why. He said, I'm coaching my daughter's team. I said, oh my God, that poor kid. So when I watched highlights of her playing, and on about the third or fourth time she touched the ball. Gianna passed it when she was open. I thought, she's not listening to her father. (laughs) So he would call and say, what kind of defensive drills should I do? We have practice tonight. We're going to work on defense. What do you think is the most important thing in teaching man-to-man? Further proof, he never listened to one word any of his coaches told him. So I tried to explain them. I said, Kobe, they're 13 years old. I think you ought to just say, hey, you know, see the kid with the ball, try not to let her go by you and see if you're guarding the other guys. Hey, see the kid with the ball over there. Don't let her throw the ball to your guy. Keep it kind of simple, you know? He said, no, I want to know, like, what are the rotations when they drive? I said, come on, come on, come on. So these are the conversations that we have both as basketball people and as dads who have ever coached their kids. If you've ever been in that situation, like a lot of people here in this room probably have been. And I remember when Gigi came, as you saw in that video, she came to our very for, uh, the very first game that she came to, and she came into the locker room. And here she is, and the look on her face, the smile the way her eyes just took everything in, how excited she was to be around, in her mind, royalty. It's ironic. (laughs) Her father's royalty. And she's excited to be around royalty that looks just like what she wants to be. And the most impressive thing about that point in time was how Kobe stepped as far back as he could. So anyone taking pictures Anyone there would not know that this was Kobe Bryant's daughter. This was her moment. This is her, her time to shine. This was her time to experience all the things that he's experienced his whole life. He was being dad. He wasn't being Kobe Bryant. And he was allowing Gigi to be Gigi, not Kobe Bryant's daughter. In today's day and age, that's a hell of a thing for parents to be able to do.
0: And my goodness, all through this entire memorial service, relentlessly almost, came the subject of being a father to a daughter. And it was everywhere. And we learned that, my goodness, Kobe was a present dad. And the celebration before some of the world's greatest athletes, I don't think I've ever seen that many great athletes assembled under one roof in American history. And there they were clapping and applauding for the role of fatherhood, not stardom, fatherhood in the lives of kids. And that's what this was a celebration of, folks, and that's why we're bringing it to you. And up next, his bride, Vanessa. And my goodness, you heard a lot about Kobe, the father. You're about to hear a little bit about Kobe, the husband. These were her parting words. And my goodness, there wasn't a dry eye in the house, how she kept it together through this. I'll never know but it is beautiful and it's what anyone thinks of or wants to say when they know they'll never see loved ones again. Here is Vanessa Bryant.
9: He isn't going to be here to drop Bianca and Capri off at pre-K or kindergarten. He isn't going to be here to tell me to get a grip V when we have to leave the kindergarten classroom or show up to our daughter's doctor's visits for my own moral support. He isn't going to be able to walk our girls down the aisle or spin me around on the dance floor while singing PYT to me. But I want my daughters to know and remember the amazing person, husband, and father he was. The kind of man that wanted to teach the future generations to be better and keep them from making his own mistakes. He always liked working and doing projects to improve kids' lives. He taught us all valuable lessons about life and sports through his MBA career his books, his show detail, and his punies podcast series. And we're so thankful he left those lessons and stories behind for us. He was thoughtful and wrote the best love letters and cards. And Gigi had his wonderful ability to express her feelings into paper and make you feel her love through her words. She was thoughtful like him. They were so easy to love. Everyone naturally gravitated towards them. They were funny happy, silly, and they loved life. They were so full of joy and adventure. God knew they couldn't be on this earth without each other. He had to bring them home to heaven together. Babe, you take care of our Gigi. And I got Nani, Bibi, and Coco. We're still the best team. We love and miss you, Boo Boo and Gigi. May you both rest in peace and have fun in heaven until we meet again one day. We love you both and miss you forever and always. Mommy.
0: And there's almost nothing to say. And what class and what... What beauty, and we have to remember there was a time in Kobe's life where he hit bottom. There were sexual assault charges. A lot of people probably in her ear saying, dump him. What did he do? The charges were dropped, and Kobe had to rehabilitate himself, not just in front of a few people, but the whole world. And his wife hung in there, and they had a life together. There was forgiveness, and there was clearly redemption. He came to the NBA when he was 17 years old, his parents had to sign his contract. He wasn't old enough. Came right out of high school. And by the way, part of that redemption was playing with the Redeem team under Mike Shashevsky, which I wrote about in a piece in Newsweek. He had been a young guy, got a lot of attention, but ultimately became the villain in his own story. He'd run Shaquille O'Neal off the team. He'd run Phil Jackson off the team. And then he'd almost run his own family into the ground but to watch a man come back and fix it and heal it and grow and get better. We all watch this. And he once wrote about this, actually, because he was a remarkable writer, and here's what he wrote about it as he was retiring. No hero is perfect, and no villain is completely void of heroic intentions. We all live as both, he wrote on his website on the day he retired. What sets the good ones apart is how they use their inner villain to create something epic and beautiful. It's living as a hero-villain. The hero-villain channels fear, rejection, anger, self-doubt, and turns it all into strength and courage and power and determination and love. And those are words of a guy who also, in his last act here on this earth, took communion with his daughter, at his local Catholic church, and prayed with her before stepping on that helicopter. Up next in the memorial service was Rob Polinka, not only Kobe's agent for his entire career, but a close personal friend, vacationed together, mentor, pal, and in the end, a guy, well, two guys who loved each other. He's now the general manager of the Los Angeles Lakers, and here is Rob Polinka on Kobe the Husband.
10: When God made Kobe, the next great act of his was to fashion Vanessa. I know this because they are matched perfectly together and I've had a front row seat to being witness to their love for 20 years. I remember all the way back to their wedding day in 2001. In typical Kobe fashion, he wanted to master every detail of that day to reflect his love for Vanessa. One of the things he was most excited about was carrying Vanessa in his arms over the threshold of their home as a husband and wife for the first time. Vanessa brought out Kobe's romantic side like nobody else in the world could. He loved to celebrate holidays with her, her birthday anniversary, and especially Valentine's Day. Often he would call me to brainstorm his incredible ideas for special gifts and romantic occasions with her. He even loved to write poems and letters to her and make them into beautiful keepsake books. Simply put, Kobe's love for Vanessa was the energy for his life. One particular story captures the depth of Kobe's love for Vanessa. There was a stretch of days when work travel was causing Kobe to be away from Vanessa for longer than he wanted. He called me to explain how hard this stretch was for him. One night on the phone, Kobe noticed there was a grand piano in the hotel suite he was staying in. He sat by a tall window under the moonlit sky. During one of our calls, he shared an idea with me. He said he hadn't been sleeping much at night, because he was missing V and the girls so much. While he was away, he wanted to live in his love for Vanessa, so at night, under the moonlit sky, he vowed to teach himself, by ear, to play the first movement of Beethoven's Moonlit Sonata. When he told me this, I thought, there's no way. I knew he wasn't a trained musician, and that was a really difficult piece of music to play. But Kobe's passion and love for Vanessa, combined with the patience and focus that only the Black Mamba has, made this seemingly impossible goal a reality. That next morning, Kobe called and played me the first few measures. The next morning, more. By the end of the week, he had the entire piece mastered, and he played it for me over the phone without a mistake. In my heart, I knew that moment was one of Kobe's grandest feats for his deepest love. Kobe had mastered one of the greatest piano movements ever written as a symbol of one of the most beautiful loves the world has ever seen. To close, I will say this. Just as the sun lights the moon to guide us through the night, Kobe and Gigi will continue to shine light in all of us. But unlike the sun, Kobe and Gigi's fuel will never, ever burn out because their light is eternal. Yes, the axis of our world shifted that frightful morning a few weeks back, but with Kobe and Gigi's moonlight, we will never have to live in the darkness of night again. We will all journey on until one day we will be in heaven together again, and this time it will be forever. I love you, dear Kobe and precious Gigi.
0: And that was Rob Palenka, and up next came Alicia Keys with a full Steinway and musicians to do her rendition without speaking of Beethoven's Moonlight Sonata. Let's go to the cut.
11: Please welcome Alicia Keys.
0: And we continue with our American stories and the memorial service of Kobe Bryant's and what a life and what a career and what a man. And that's really what was celebrated there. Very little talk of Kobe the athlete, almost none. That was obvious, but this is what made it so special. We saved the best for last. And in 1996, Michael Jordan faced an 18-year-old Kobe Bryant on the court for the first time. Midway through the game, while playing, Kobe asked him for some tips on his jump shot. Kobe scored 33 that night against his boyhood idol. Michael nailed down 36 and won the game. But they developed a relationship over time, a sort of a father-son relationship that developed into a brotherly one. Here is the usually cold, clean, and sober Michael Jordan. Well, you're going to hear him in a different light.
11: You know, all of us have brothers and sisters. For whatever reason, I always tend to get in your stuff, your closet, your shoes, everything. It was a nuisance, if I can say that word. But that nuisance turned into love over a period of time just because the admiration that they had for you as big brothers or big sisters. The questions, they wanting to know every little detail about life that they were about to embark on. He used to call me, text me, 1130, 2.30, three o'clock in the morning. Talking about post-up moves, footwork, and sometimes the triangle. At first, it was an aggravation. But then it turned into a certain passion. This kid had passion like you would never know. And it's an amazing thing about passion. If you love something, if you have a strong passion for something, you would go to the extreme to try to understand or try to get it. Either ice cream, Cokes, hamburgers, whatever you have a love for. If you have to walk, you would go get it. If you have to beg someone, you will go get it. What Kobe Bryant was to me was the inspiration that someone truly cared about the way either I played the game or the way that he wanted to play the game. He wanted to be the best basketball player that he could be. And as I got to know him, I wanted to be the best big brother that I could be. (laughs) To do that, you had to put up with the aggravation, the late night calls, or the dumb questions. I took great pride, as I got to know Kobe Bryant, that he was just trying to be a better person, a better basketball player. We talked about business. We talked about family. We talked about everything. And he was just trying to be a better person. Now he's got me, I'll have to look at another crime meme for the next... I told my wife I wasn't gonna do this because I didn't want to see that for the next three or four years. That is what Kobe Bryant does to me. I'm pretty sure Vanessa and his friends all can say the same thing. He knows how to get to you in a way that affects you personally, even though if he's being a pain in the (laughs) But he always, you ever have a sense of love for him and the way that he can bring out the best in you. And he did that for me. I remember maybe a couple of months ago, he sends me a text and he's saying, I'm trying to teach my daughter some moves and I don't know what I was thinking or what I was working on, but what, would you, what were you thinking about when you were trying to, as you were growing up, trying to work on your moods? I said, what age? He says, 12. I said, 12, I was trying to play baseball. He sends me a text back saying, laughing my ass off. (laughs) And this was at 2 o'clock in the morning. (laughs) But the thing about him was we could talk about anything that related to basketball, but we can talk about anything that related to life. And we, as we grew up in life, rarely have friends that we can have conversations like that. Well, it's even rare when you can grow up against adversaries and have conversations like that. I went and saw Phil Jackson in 1999 or maybe 2000, I don't know when Phil was here in LA. And I walk in and Kobe's sitting there. And the first thing, I'm in a suit, first thing Kobe said, did you bring your shoes? No, I wasn't thinking about playing, (laughs) but his attitude to compete and play against someone he felt like he could enhance and improve his game to me. that's what I loved about the kid. Absolutely loved about the kid. No matter where he saw me, it was a challenge. And I admired him because his passion, you rarely see someone who's looking and trying to improve each and every day, not just in sports, but as a parent, as a husband. I am inspired by what he's done and what he shared with Vanessa and what he's shared with his kids. I have a daughter who is 30 who just became a grandparent. And I have two twins. I have twins at six. I can't wait to get home to become a girl dad and to hug them and to see the love that they, and the smiles that they bring to us as parents. He taught me that just by looking at this tonight, looking at how he responded and reacted with the people that he actually loved. These are the things that we will continue to learn from Kobe Bryant. To Vanessa, Natalia, Bianca, free. My wife and I will keep you close in our hearts and our prayers. We will always be here for you. Always. I also want to offer our condolences and support to all the families affected by this enormous tragedy. Kobe gave every last ounce of himself to whatever he was doing. After basketball, he showed a creative side to himself. That I didn't think any of us knew he had. In retirement, he seemed so happy, he found new passions, and he continued to give back as a coach in his community. More importantly, he was an amazing dad, amazing husband who dedicated himself to his family and who loved his daughters with all his heart. Kobe never left anything on the court. And I think that's what he would want for us to do. No one knows how much time we have. That's why we must live in the moment. We must enjoy the moment. We must reach and see and spend as much time as we can with our families and friends and the people that we absolutely love. To live in the moment means to enjoy each and everyone that we come in contact with. When Kobe Bryant died, a piece of me died. And as I look in this arena and across the globe, a piece of you died or else you wouldn't be here. Those are the memories that we have to live with and we learn from. I promise you, from this day forward, I will live with the memories of knowing that I had a little brother that I tried to help in every way I could. Please, rest in peace, little brother.
0: And that was Michael Jordan, and my goodness, he was just crying through the whole thing. And had to ultimately make a joke about it. He was just trying to be a better person, Jordan said. He tried to improve each and every day as a player, as a husband, as a father. And he gave every last ounce of himself. He left nothing on the court. And that's not just the basketball court, folks. That's in every aspect and dimension of his life. A piece of me died, he said, choking up. And everybody was choking up because a piece of all of us died. It was true. Any of us who were fans and followed his life from boyhood through to being a to man, to being a real man. No talk, notice of the basketball accolades. No talk of the five championships, the gold medal in the Olympics. No talk of the scoring. No talk of the ads and the fame. It was all about being a father and all about being a husband. And go figure, you could hear it in Michael Jordan's voice when he listened to these friendships forged you know Jordan's life was going to be different afterwards because Kobe was teaching Michael and all of us from the grave how to be better husbands, better fathers, and better friends. Kobe Bryant's memorial here on Our American Story.